0: Well, good morning again, uh, I, I love Baptism Sundays. The chance to get to be here and participate in someone and uh, their baptism is just a sweet grace and a privilege. With that, everything's gotta be shortened, including the sermon, and so let's get started. Uh, as she said, we're in a series in the book of Exodus. Exodus, the story of Israel being delivered out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. And here's where we're at in the story. Israel has been delivered. God delivered them out of Egypt and uh, out of slavery and has led them to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God gave the Ten Commandments, these ten words about how to live as my people, how to live in relationship with me. So the opening of these commandments was to have no other gods before me, and that this language was language that was parallel to that of a marriage relationship, that, that in the same way as a husband, I'm to have no other women before me, the way my wife is a woman before me, that Israel was to have no other gods before them the way that their God was to be a God before them. And then uh, God told Moses, here's what I want you to do. I I want you to leave the people down at the base of the mountain. You come halfway up the mountain uh, with a few people, Aaron and a few others. You leave them there, and you come to the top of the mountain, and and you're going to be here for 40 days, 40 nights, where I'm going to give you instructions on how to build the tabernacle. This place where I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell among my people, where you would come into my presence. I'm going to give you these instructions on how to build this place. But while Moses was up there, the people of Israel were down in the base and they built a golden calf. They, they broke the first two commandments. They, they built this calf and they were worshiping this calf. Moses comes down the mountain. He sees it. He takes the tablets with these commandments, throws them down to the base of the mountain. They shatter. And then we hit chapters 33 and 34 which we looked at last week and this week, and we said that they are in response to the scene. They're in response to the scene of the golden calf. And in these two chapters, there are two themes, two of the great themes of the Bible that get introduced and developed, the themes of presence and glory, the presence of God and the glory of God. And so last week we looked at presence. This week we're building off of presence because we said that presence and glory think two sides of one coin, We're building off of presence, and we're going to talk glory. But to talk about glory, we have to talk about the scene that we're entering into, what it is that we're looking at here in chapter 34. And the scene that we're entering into is a covenant renewal ceremony. So what is a covenant? Uh, Covenant is not common language that we use. In fact, in a conversation with my neighbor, I don't know that I've ever used the word covenant. So what is a covenant? Well, I think the best way to understand it, at least as it relates here to Exodus, is to contrast it with a contract. And so here's a definition that I want to give us to work with. Here's a covenant a mutually binding relationship between two or more parties. A covenant goes beyond a mere contractual relationship by its formation of genuine bonds between the parties. So a contract is transactional, a covenant is relational. It's why with AT&T, I have a contract. But with my wife, I have a covenant. It's why every year with AT&T, I do this, and you should do it too. I call, and I threaten to leave them. (laughs) Why? I want the best price I can get. And one year, we left them. And you know what we did? We called that company, threatened to leave them, and we left them, came back to AT&T. Because it's a contract. There's no relationship. It's a transactional relationship. I want the best price For the best service I can get, and if I can get that somewhere else, I will go somewhere else. But you know what I've never done to my wife? Threaten to leave. I do not have an annual conversation with my wife that goes, "Hey, you know what? If you don't do X, Y, and Z, I'm gone." Why? It's a covenant, not a contract. Here's why this matters: When the scriptures describe the primary way in which God uh, interacts, relates with His people, it's a covenant. It's a covenant. It's not a contract. It is relational. It's not transactional. And this covenant is what needs to be renewed because when Israel when Israel built this golden calf and worshipped the golden calf, what they were doing was committing spiritual adultery. And now, now, Israel having broken the covenant, God is re-entering and renewing the covenant with them. And when they broke that covenant, here's what God said, I'm going to remove my presence from among you. Which is his way of saying don't build the tabernacle. Don't build the tabernacle. I'm going to remove my presence from among you. But Moses interceded. God relented. And he said, okay, you can go and you can build the tabernacle. And Moses' response was this. He burst into prayer, end of chapter 23. And his prayer was this. God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Show me your glory, Lord. And now, chapter 34 We have Moses going up into the presence of God where God is initiating this covenant renewal. And in this presence, in this covenant renewal, it's going to build and work its way toward Moses coming down to this face, beaming with glory. But we'll get to that in the end. Here's what we're going to see as we look into this covenant. We're going to see the heart of the covenant, the expectations of the covenant, and the glory of the covenant. So let's talk the heart of the covenant. Verse one. The Lord said to Moses, "'Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, "'and I'll write on the tablets "'the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. "'Be ready by the morning, "'and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, "'and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. "'No one shall come up with you, "'and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain, and let no flocks or herds gaze opposite that mountain.' "'So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. So this is where the scene begins. Moses being told, okay, cut two tablets. You're going to take those two tablets. You're going to come up into my presence. I'm going to write the words that I wrote on the first two on them. These are the words of the Ten Commandments, these ten words, these ten words that When Moses came down the mountain the first time he took, he threw shatter, which every commentator agreed that was symbolic of Israel having broken the covenant that they were in. And now God is saying, hey, get two more tablets and come back up. I'm going to rewrite the words on these tablets. Now look at what happens, because what happens next shows, I think, the utter uniqueness of Israel's God from every other God known to man at the time. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud, cloud of his glory, and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Did you see what happened there? The Lord what? Descended. You know what what gods in the ancient world didn't do? Descend. They didn't come down to the people, certainly not a disobedient people. You gave them a few stipulations they might be able to work their way to you, but you never came down. Gods did not come down, and now the Lord speaks, and when the Lord speaks, he says, he proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, verse 6 the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, four times from the end of chapter 5 through chapter 6, not chapter 5 through chapter 6, verse 5 and verse 6, it says the Lord, four times. Now, in ancient Hebrew, if you wanted to emphasize something, you repeated it. So if you see something twice, you know, oh, they want us to see that. You see it three times, they're talking loud. You see it four, and they're screaming it in your face. The Lord, my name, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, 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 the Lord. Who am I? I I am the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, in the context of the story of Exodus, this is really utterly shocking. This is utterly shocking that the opening words to this covenant renewal with a people who have walked out of the covenant that they were in is, Here, here's who I am. Not, here's the problem with you. Here's who I am. Merciful. Gracious. Abounding. Steadfast love this was again utterly unique in the ancient world utterly unique you will not find in the ancient near east literature stories about a god who is described as merciful gracious and slow to anger they were demanding quick to punish which is why if you tend to believe or tend to think uh, aren't all religions just kind of the same well w- what you're doing in that is you're not letting the religions speak for themselves You're not taking them at face value because they they all have contrasting claims with contrasting gods. You're speaking for them when what this would say, what Moses would say is, no, you listen, Our, our God is utterly unique from every other God on the face of the earth. Utterly unique. You will not find a God who is merciful and gracious like our God, who would say that right now. See, here's the uniqueness of this, that the heart of the covenant is the heart of God. The heart of this covenant is the heart of God, the heart of God that is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And throughout the Old Testament, that line becomes a repetitive refrain that gets developed. Why? Because if you read the Old Testament, here's the story of Israel, the story of a people who forgot that over and over and over and over. And so they got reminded over and over and over and over. The great hymn that we sing that goes, our hearts are prone to wander is not simply a hymn that started with us. It was a hymn that was true of Israel as well. Hearts of a people prone to water, and so they repetitively got reminded God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger. This is the heart of the covenant, is the heart of God, a God who is merciful and gracious. That does not mean that there are not expectations with the covenant. Just because it comes from the heart of God does not mean that there are not commands and expectations that come with this covenant. So the expectations of the covenant. Here they are. Look at verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Stop on that word right there, command. This is God saying, observe what I command you. This is not a willy-nilly invitation. This is not, hey, if you feel like it, this is God saying to his people, let me tell you what I command of you. Let me tell you what I expect of you. Here's the expectations for living as my people. Here's what I'm commanding you to obey today. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God." lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Now this is pretty graphic language for the Bible. Amen? Amen. But there's two expectations in here that are repetitive expectations that have been woven throughout the story of Exodus. Expectation... One, is that you wouldn't make covenants with other gods. That you would not, as my covenant people, the people who have entered into a relationship with, that you would not then turn and enter into that kind of relationship with any other god. That you would not enter into other uh, covenants with other gods. Why? It's spiritual adultery. It's spiritual adultery. You are not to take the covenantal relationship that we have and enter into one with someone else. You live in a relationship with me alone. Expectation two is that you would not blend that you are worship of me with worship of any other God. When it says that you would tear down their altars and break their pillars, let me, let me read a definition of an altar in the Old Testament. Nothing is more prominent in the, as a biblical image for worship and religious allegiance than the altar. It is no exaggeration to say that the most visible sign of one's devotion to the true God in the worship of the old covenants is the building of altars and traveling to them for acts of sacrifice and offering. So here's the, the point. When, he, when he's saying you will tear down and break down these altars, these were places of pagan worship. He was saying you don't go and you don't worship over here while you worship me over here. You, you don't, as my people, blend worship of God X with me. You, you tear that down. You don't worship multiple gods. You worship me. You worship me alone. These are two related expectations that you would not enter into a covenant with any other God and that you would not worship any other God or blend your worship of me with the worship of any other God. So this is God saying, here is who I am. I am merciful. I am gracious. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in steadfast love. And this is what it looks like to live in relationship with me. It looks like you don't enter into covenants with anyone else, no other gods, and you don't blend your worship of me with anyone else. And now, Moses is going to come down the mountain with his face beaming from the presence of God, and we get to see the glory of the covenant. Look at verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face had shone because he had been talking with God. I, I wish I were there for the scene because I simply don't know how he didn't know. Like at some point it had to be nighttime. You walk past a tree, you see the glow. How does he not see that his face is shining? no idea. Verse 30, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. After all, the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face, Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he, had, what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put a veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So Moses goes up, he speaks with God, he comes down the mountain, face beaming with the glory of God because he's been in the presence of God. And Whenever he's speaking to Israel, he puts a veil over his face. When he goes back in to speak with God, the veil comes up. He comes back out, he puts a veil back over his face. But there's something interesting here, I think, that Exodus doesn't tell us necessarily why. Precisely why the veil comes back over the face of Moses. We don't really know exactly what the point was. We can make some deductions and assumptions, but we don't know for sure. But fortunately, we don't have to wonder, because Second Corinthians tells us. Paul in 2 Corinthians tells us precisely what the point of the veil in the larger story over Moses' face was. And here's what he says, 2 Corinthians 3, 14. But their minds, that was the Israelites, were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remained unlifted. Look at at the language there that he just wrote. For to this day... When they read the Old Covenant, they, the Israelites, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil remains over their hearts. See, the veil, it was symbolic. It was symbolic of the state of the heart and the separation between the people of Israel and their God. And whenever the veil, whenever Moses was read, the veil was remaining over their hearts. But here's what we've seen throughout the story of Exodus. Exodus that the story of Exodus isn't simply the story of Israel, it's also the story of humanity. Right? So we looked back and we said, here's why there were ten commandments, because in Genesis 1 there were ten times where it says, and God said. And that, that the story went like this, that there was creation in Genesis 1 and 2, there was decreation when sin entered the world in Genesis 3, and then these ten words, this is recreation, how to live as a recreated people that this is the story of humanity, and that story also goes presence to presence lost to now presence restored. And so this veil isn't only symbolic of Israel, but also the natural state of humanity, that a veil is over the hearts of natural humanity when we read the Scripture. So how is that veil removed? Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Let me be clear about this, that where it says turns, the, 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 the verb here is a past one-time action. This is speaking of conversion, that when somebody turns to the Lord, the veil is lifted. That which separates you and God no longer exists. The veil has been lifted when you turn to... The Lord. And of course, that there are these daily turnings that we need in our life. As a follower of Christ, we need to daily turn from idols to Him. But this is speaking of when you turn, when you're converted from unbelief to belief, the veil is lifted. That which has created separation between you and God is no more. And when you do, when you do, you get to come and you get to live in the presence of God in the tabernacle, if you will. And so, what is life in that tabernacle like? Let's keep reading verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, we all, listen to this, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. If you've spent years in church, you've probably at some point heard this, read this, that we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord, and I just want it to captivate us a little bit right now. Like to think about that what Moses was doing, beholding God, beholding the glory of God, is what it's saying here, that you are beholding the glory of the Lord. You have an unveiled face. Moses' face unveiled in the presence of God, and you have in Christ an unveiled face. Beholding the glory of the Lord. You are being transformed, actively ongoing, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That when you are beholding the glory of the Lord, you are actively being transformed. Now, let me tell you a problem I have, and a major problem with the translation that we have here. The word transformed, terrible translation. Terrible, in my humble opinion. Let me tell you a better word for it. Transfigured. Let me show you why I think it's a bad translation and transfigured is the better word because there is an interconnected theme in the scriptures that's, that, that's not so clear in the English right here. But Matthew 17 says this is Jesus' transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured. Same word. Same word as in Corinthians, that he was transfigured is the same, you are being transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as snow. You see, the point is that there's a through line in the scriptures from Moses to Jesus to you. That Moses face beaming was a foreshadow to Jesus, the glory of the sun. And in Christ, you get to share in that Glory! You have the glory that Moses experienced in Christ. And so the question becomes, how do we live a transfigured life? If this is what we're talking about, that the glory of God transforms or transfigures us, what what does it look like to live that kind of a life? Well, there are a few things. If beholding is what we do, beholding, if seeing is what we do, If beholding is what we do, there are a few things that we see. First, we see that we have been swept up in a grand story. We see that our life is about so much more than anything we could really possibly fathom, that we have been caught up in this grand story, that the story of Exodus isn't just a story of Israel being delivered out of Egypt, but a story of God recreating the world through his exodus through the exodus that was to come in Christ that will come in the end. And that story goes glory to glory to glory. The glory beaming from Moses' face foreshadowing Jesus' glory to you being transformed from one degree of glory to another to the way that the story ends. Do you know how the story ends? I'll tell you how the story ends. It ends like this, that the city has no need for sun or moon to shine in it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. There is coming a day when the sun will not be needed. Because the glory of the sun will provide all the light that we need. And you get to share in that glory today. Today. Through line, Moses, Jesus, you, foreshadow of that day, transformed, transfigured from one degree of glory to another. You have been swept up in a grand, global, redemptive story, the story of God recreating the world. Second thing you see you see that God is covenantal not contractual. You see your God not treating you the way I treat AT&T. But as a God in relationship with you who doesn't threaten to walk away once a year. And of course you're going to stumble. God knows you're going to stumble. And God is still a covenant-keeping God with you. You know what God would say to you if you fell apart last night, two weeks ago, two months ago? Here's what he would say to you. He would say, I am merciful and I am gracious. I am slow to anger and I'm abounding in steadfast love. He is a covenant-keeping God, not a contractual God. You are his covenant people. You are not a people in contract with God. You're in a relationship, not a transactional document third thing that we see. We see Him. We behold Him. We behold Him in all of His majesty and all of His glory. We behold Him. We open the Scriptures and we see it as the story of Him and God's grandeur and glory and majesty. We look at the mountains. We see a snow-capped Mountain and we see the glory and the majesty of God. we look at a skyline, and that is not sarcasm. I love skylines, and you see the majesty of God there. You look at the ocean you don 't just see brown water in Galveston, blue water in California, you see majesty of God, glory of God. you see him, you behold him in it, you look everywhere, and you see him in his majesty and his glory you behold him and let me tell you what happens when that happens when you behold him when you worship him and you see his glory all of a sudden the places of worship that you have set up in your life the altars if you will in your life for many of us things like money sex and power they just come crashing down because the worship that we have placed over here gets just swallowed by our worship of him it gets suppressed by our worship of him and listen, I, I know talking about beholding him um, can seem a bit like behold his glory, like that's a up in the clouds kind of thing. That it, it needs to come down into our laps, but listen, it it can't. It can't, and, and it's not up in the clouds, it is real life. Like you want to deal with anxiety. Behold him. You want to deal with depression, behold Him. You want to deal with your anger, behold Him. Remember that He is not angry, He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger you. You want to deal with the brokenness of life, behold Him. And listen, that does not mean I battle anxiety on Tuesday, I open the Bible on Wednesday, I'm all good on Thursday. But it does mean that progressively it gets undercut and eroded as I behold Him. Because the story is from glory to glory to glory to glory. And life tomorrow, life in his glory to come, is what will undercut the places that we have created to worship today. We behold him and all of his majesty and all of his glory. And so the question becomes, are you? Are you beholding him? Maybe a first question is, have you turned to him? Have you turned, have you actually turned from worshiping X, Y, and Z to going, Jesus is my God? And if you have, are you beholding? Are you actively beholding him? Are you opening the scriptures? Are you looking at the world? Are you looking at one another and beholding him? And watching that undercut your worship of everything else, are you beholding him? I think it's a good starting place for some of us to ask an honest question. Am I actively beholding him and his glory and his majesty? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance to open up Exodus 34 and in a few minutes talk about you and your majesty and your glory. Ah, Give us eyes to see. Would you lift our eyes up to see you, all of who you are, your majesty, your glory. Would that change us? Would that shape us? Would that enter into our lives Would it undercut the things that we worship, the altars that we've created? Whether that's relationships, whether that's success, whatever those are, would your glory, would your glory enter in and transfigure and transform and shape us and mold us? Uproot the lesser glories in our life and replace it with your majestic, eternal glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.